0: who are serving with them let's pick it up now in uh, Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 7 you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth this persuasion did not come from him who calls you a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let's pray. Father, as we once again look into Your Word, we recognize that we are stepping back over centuries of time, and we are aware that the situation that was recorded about this particular situation is not something that we are immediately familiar with. But Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit we would help to understand what are the main outlines of what You're seeking to communicate through this text of Scripture. We pray that by your spirit you would help us to uh, be able to understand the context of these words, understand the significance of them, and understand, Father, what we would need to know so that we might run the race that you've set before us, the race of the gospel, until that day, Lord, when we see you face to face and step over the finish line. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with an open admission and acknowledgement I have never, ever understood marathon races. The reason I've never understood a marathon race, and I know some of you have, how many of you have run in a marathon or half marathon? I know at least one of you has. Uh, Yeah, I see those hands. Okay, good. I cannot fathom how anybody can run more than, let's say, three or four miles, maybe five miles at one time. I've never even gone probably past three. So, not to mention, 26.2 miles of ongoing, consistent running. I could see myself running that distance over several months. (laughs) And that's generous. On a treadmill, in the gym, maybe a mile or two at a time. Every marathon runner has my deepest respect and admiration. Because they, as long-distance runners, they are facing some unique and incredible challenges that the guys who are really fast, you know, the sprint runners, they don't face the similar challenges. Due to the length of the race, there is this greater likelihood of injuries and issues that they must deal with. I would say, first of all, the issue of just tenacity and Persistence and perseverance just to keep going is incredible. Uh, then there are those, of course, issues of dehydration is a big issue, where your body is just not healthy at all in terms of the fluids. And then there's the uh, foot problems. You, know, you run that long that distance and you get blisters on your feet or you get sort of a twisted ankle, Boy, that'll, that'll sideline you right now. And there's much likelihood of that, that kind of distance. And you're going to eventually you could pull up and fall short of the finish line. Now I'm thinking about marathons in my mind and been rehearsing that and uh, sort of meditating on that because the text of Scripture we're looking at this morning talks about running. Did you see that, verse seven? And it's not too surprising that running appears in Scripture because we know a number of times the biblical writers used the idea of an athletic foot race as a metaphor for the Christian life. So that we hear the writer of Hebrews, he writes to his readers, and he says, listen, run the race that is set before you, Hebrews chapter 12. It is Paul who, as he approaches his own death and realizes the number of days that he is going to live are, are very few, he says, looking back over his own life as a Christian, he says, I have run the race. And so here we come to this text in our passage of Scripture this morning, and Paul clearly, at the beginning of his apostolic ministry, this is not the end, but this is the beginning, where he's one of the first books that he's written now, the book of Galatians, at this letter, he's writing it with a concern for a number of these believers who, in Jesus Christ, they have, one time, they had begun the Gospel of Grace Marathon. And they were running well, verse 7 says. Well, in some ways you could say that that statement is a, a strong affirmation, right? It's a word of commendation. You were running well. That's a nice thing to hear. But the compliment, notice, is in the past tense. You were running well. And hence the problem of a marathon race. You were running well. See, that describes me when I'm literally running. Yeah, I run run okay for a little while, but my left knee starts killing me, and that's it. I'm done. You were running well. For some reason, their progress among these believers had slowed, if it had not stopped, perhaps, altogether. And they were not faring well. And so here's Paul, a supportive coach, as it were. He is approaching them, coming alongside of them as he writes to them, and he's offering several important reminders, and I'd like us to consider those this morning. Several reminders that they might advance toward the goal of the gospel of grace, which they had received, they have begun to live it out, and he is speaking into their lives so that we too, as those who are listening into to what he's saying, we might also benefit from those reminders. What's the first one? Well, when it comes to running a gospel of grace marathon, It's important that you understand that we need to be obeying the truth. Obeying the truth. Here is Paul. He is sort of like a relay runner. And he had been handed the gospel of grace himself as he himself became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And so now he's handed that baton off to those who are sort of behind him, these believers here in Galatia. And he imparted to them, not religion, That's not what he brought them when he came and ministered among them. He brought to them the transforming truths of the gospel of grace. And in your notes, I've tried to make the distinction here that Paul clearly made between that which we call the creed of every religion is this. All the religions of the world, you add them all together, you boil them all down, it says, I obey and therefore I deserve God's acceptance. I do X, Y, and Z, therefore I am due God's acceptance. But Paul proclaimed a radically different message. And he gave and spoke to them the creed of Christianity. And that is this I am accepted because of Jesus Christ's death and aton- uh, his obedience and Jesus Christ's atoning death. Therefore, because I am accepted on the basis of grace, I obey. That is radically different than all the other creeds of religion. The gospel is not about being religious. It's not about avoiding religion altogether. Because Paul said in verse 6, from what we noticed last week, he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's not important in those areas. The gospel is good news that those who believe in Christ are granted acceptance before God as a gift on the basis of grace rather than something that we must earn. And keeping rules and trying harder and living a better life and performing religious rituals will never earn us merit which entitles us to deserve God's favor. You say, but yeah, but some people hear the word grace, and they just sort of think, well, if you're talking about the gospel of grace, then they start running in a direction that says, uh, you know, you talk about gifts, the gift of eternal life, they're running in a direction that says, it doesn't make any difference how you live your life. If God deals with us on the basis of grace, then who cares? Live however you please. And they totally run in the wrong direction if you will, in terms of their life. And they think that if it's all about grace and Jesus gives us all this full acceptance on the basis of grace, then we're free to live however you please. I just want to show a correction of that in these verses that Paul points out. Verses 6 and 7 here, Paul spells out the nature of the gospel of grace marathon is this. It is faith that works itself out through love. That faith in Christ evidences itself where there's love that evidences my life. It's not just living for me, me, me. It's a love, the love for God and a love for other people that becomes the real heartbeat of my life. In verse 7, he speaks of obeying the truth. That is the gospel of grace. Yes, we are saved by grace, but it means that it leads us into a new realm of living in which we obey the truth. Not because we have to, Not because we're trying to become better, but because that is what we want to do. Because of His grace. The Gospel declares that we gain God's approval on the basis of grace by fully trusting in Jesus' righteousness alone. But saving grace always transforms our hearts with new motives. It is Martin Luther who said, We are justified by faith alone but not by a faith that is alone. Very important to understand that. Turn with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. Just hold your finger there. We'll come back. But Titus chapter 2, page 1418 in your pew Bible. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Very interesting text here because the gospel of grace, if we were to join that marathon, then That marathon means that we are going to be moving in a direction over a period of time toward holy living rather than lawless living. Titus 2, verses 11 12, summarizes the gospel of grace dynamic in this way. For the grace of God has appeared, meaning Jesus and His ministry of atoning grace and mercy shown to us in His death, burial, and resurrection, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny, not to embrace, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What he's saying there is by grace we are accepted, therefore we joyfully and thankfully obey. My wife uh, attended a conference uh, earlier this week, on Friday actually, and in this particular convention, uh, conference, uh, it was through her work and so there's a number of these uh, people, we have these displays and a number of little booths you can stop by and they have a bunch of freebies and I joke about it because she's gone this before, I said, bring me some good freebies. So I always like the pens, that's what I like, the, the good pens. So anyway, she brings back a number of freebies and these are little Trotsky items that aren't really worth that much monetarily, like for example, a letter opener, it's got the name of somebody that they're promoting their little business, and you can open your letter, and it has a little gizmo that you can, these little brush that you can clean out your keyboard on, I mean, life goes on if you don't have this, (laughs) but it's free, (laughs) so I was glad to see that that's one of the items, But, but if you look at these things, you say to yourself, can I live without this? It's clearly not indispensable. It's free, but it's something I easily could acquire if I really needed or wanted it. But when we talk about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we talk about it being free. There's a component of it that we must never lose sight of. It is a costly grace. And the understanding of the costly grace, understanding that grace is costly and sacrificial is what changes oftentimes our response to that grace. For example, if a man who lives in a rather remote country of the world understands and is told to diagnose that he has a disease, a disease that's going to terminate his life if he doesn't get proper medical care. But that man has no resources to access that care, and he pretty much is going to face a decline declining health situation until he dies. But a friend of his, who is of a little bit more moderate means than he is, hears of this plight that this man has, and he goes out and sells almost all of his assets. Perhaps he has livestock or something. So he's, he's selling it off, and he's pretty much saying, I'm willing to give this stuff away and I'm going to take it, and I'm making it possible for you now to be flown out of the country to a place where you can retain the kind of medical care you need. I'll pay for that as well to get the treatments you need. And so the man does uh, take that trip. He is treated for those, uh, this particular disease. And after those treatments, he is actually cured. They have given him what he needed, which he was unable to acquire on his own. And now he comes back to the country that he was from, and he sees the man who sacrificially gave away so much of his own resources and now is going to face tremendously difficult life, he now says, what, how do you think he's going to deal with that, the kindness of that man? You think he's just going to say, well, I'm not even going to look him up, I'll just text him on my cell phone, thanks a lot. I don't think so. I would imagine if you were that man or if I were that man, we would make a beeline for the man who sacrificed like that And we would say to him, I'll never, ever be able to thank you enough. I'll do anything for you. I'll serve you in any way I possibly can. I'll help you. And because you are in a situation, I'll be glad to help do anything I can. Any day, every day, the rest of my life, I'll be glad to do that for you. That, my friends, I believe, helps us understand how grace operates. There's a joyful expression of love that comes from someone who's received an undeserved favor and benefit from one who gave it sacrificially. And you put this in the context that that story breaks down because we're not on good terms with God. We're an enemy of God. That man was a friend. And so the gospel of grace is more than just affirming certain truths. If we receive sacrificial love and grace that comes to us, Therefore, our response is going to be what? Sacrificial love. And therefore, that's why Paul says, it's not just affirming certain truths in our minds. The gospel is involved in in a response of love and affection for Christ that results in a desire to please Him and not out of a need to win His acceptance, but out of thankfulness for His grace and His mercy. It's a radical difference in understanding of why we are living the life. Why are we running the race of the marathon of the Gospel? We're not running for ourselves. We're not trying to impress other people. We're not trying to, to break the record and gain notoriety for ourselves. We're running the, great, the, running the race of the Gospel for Christ. We're running it for His glory. We're running to show, look what He has done for me. And I'm living for Him. And as I'm running, I'm running looking to Him. Realizing what a gracious God He is. That he, would, that he would give me the opportunity to run for Him in this race that He laid out for me. I want to please Christ. And toward that end, that costly grace is leading me to want to live a holy life for Him day by day. My friend, you will never ever Find victory over struggling areas of sin into your life till you grab hold of that truth, that costly grace saves you from the penalty of sin so that you might what? So that you might now be motivated out of a sense of love and joy and thankfulness to Christ to run in a way that you're running toward Him and running for Him. Makes all the difference in the world. It really does. And some of us in our running, I think we become... uh, so tired of this it's so it's so it requires so much of me that's what i do when i'm running literally in this world i'm like oh i can't stand running for long 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 distances but if you're thinking about the christian life who are we running toward and why are we running and and, and what is the running all about it's about christ being thankful and joyous for all he's done for us Another insight in this text, I want to move on here because the text has a number of things I want to draw out of it. He goes on to say after verse 7, he begins to talk about who hindered you from obeying the truth. He begins to turn his attention to the fact that there were a number of challenges that these runners were running into. And so the gospel of grace, we understand this marathon, we're going to expect opposition. We should expect opposition. As I've done some research about sports competition in the first century, and in the Greek and Roman world, obviously it was something that was uh, often celebrated and something that, was, uh, take, that took place a number of times, they loved athletic events, and foot races were a very strong component of these competitions and including foot races that were run in a different way than how we run them now. If you ever look at the Olympics, they always have a very large oval track. And so that track has got lines in it that are laid out, whatever. Well, the way they used to run the races in the first century, the racers would run to a post at a distance and then make their way around that post and then return back to where they started. Now, think about that. If you're a runner... And suppose it's a very long distance, so it's a long way down there, but you're going to run down there, and then you're going to converge on this one post. Guess what happens at that post? Man, there's a lot of strategy and significant people, significant movements to try to gain advantage over the piece people you're trying to beat in that race, right? Think about it. You're not running in a track around this way. You're running to a destination, and you're trying to get around that without going too far beyond it, Right? So, what happened was, in that day, is that runners inevitably encountered a fair amount of interference with other runners as they approached and then ran around the post and then tried to reverse direction. And that's where we get this terminology here, verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth. What he's addressing there is the fact that, indeed, in order to gain advantage, some competitors would impede the progress by cutting in front of another runner. And what Paul is addressing here in Galatians chapter 5 had, is that there had been a group of individuals who had impeded the race that was being run by these believers, and a group is a bunch of legalists bringing with them a long list of rules that you need to keep, the things you must do in order to be a Christian. And These false teachers insisted on adding to the gospel of grace the requirement that in order to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew, and therefore be circumcised. And such teaching is not from God. As he says there in verse 8, he says that's not what God has instructed us is the true gospel. And look at the verbs now you find in verses 7 through 12. Verse 7 you find the word hinder. In verse 10, the New American Standard has the word disturb. In verse 11, the word persecute. In in verse 12, troubling. You see, the Gospel of Grace marathon, for those of us who are going to be involved in running this long, long race, we're always going to be facing various forms of opposition. Count on it. You're going to find it. Don't Don't be surprised by that. There are many religions and religious people who will try to convince you, and who will try to convince me, that you're mere, that, that merely trusting in Jesus and receiving the gospel promises of grace is not enough? They will try to get you to be baptized. They will try to say, "Well, you need to, be, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to give your money." Away, blah blah blah. The name of all this stuff, and we are told that we need to perform certain rituals. We need to jump through certain uh, religious hoops. And will you look what Paul says here? Why is he making such a big deal over this legalism that was causing this serious problem in the church? Why is it so important that believers embrace and live out the gospel of grace? Shouldn't we as Christians be a little bit more conciliatory toward those who sincerely follow their own religious beliefs? And Paul's answer is this, verse 9. What may seem like a minor issue that is adding a few works to the gospel of grace is actually a huge issue because it undermines and destroys the gospel of grace. You see that verse 9? A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, I am looking forward to Thanksgiving just like I look forward to Christmas every year because those are the two times a year that I like to bake yeast rolls. I have a weakness for carbohydrates, I admit it, especially when it's slathered with butter all over it. I have a very strong weakness in that area. That's why I only do it two times a year. And I will pull out the recipe book and I'll pull out the packets of yeast and I will start that process usually on Thanksgiving Day and I will begin by activating that yeast in the bowl, which means you combine it with a number of things, hot water, whatever. Uh, and then you have to add the flour, and then you have this amazing mixer in which it has a, an arm on the mixer, which is called a claw. And that dough claw will take that thing and just spin it around, and it kneads the dough so it's all mixed up, and then you just let it sit. Hands off, go off and do something else. Come back an hour or two later and what was small in this lump of dough is now up to the top. And then you take it and you divide it and you put it, all, put it in smaller things, however you're going to make the roll, you put those out and then you let those sit for a while. And what happens? It continues to rise. It's, a, it's an awesome thing. It really is cool. Not half as cool as after you bake them, eat them, let me tell you. All right, anyway, I'm making you hungry talking about this, at least I am. All right, so what's the point of this? The point is that a tiny little amount of yeast, if it's done correctly, has affected and influenced the whole lump of dough. The whole lump of dough. Everything I've now cut is all sort of—it's it's all risen. The point here—that's a positive illustration. But one little error in the fundamentals of the gospel spreads and makes it way its way through the entire church. That is what Paul's concerned about here. There's a big difference between saying you believe in justification by faith, that is, you affirm that faith is part of that understanding as to how one can be justified. It's it's one thing to say you believe in justification by faith. It's another thing to say I believe in justification by faith alone, with nothing added to that. And many people will say today, well, what difference does it make whether Jesus is the way or simply a way to God? It makes all the difference in the world. You see, the gospel of grace is not, as I show you in the notes here, it is not God helps those who help themselves. It's not the gospel. That's the gospel of, of having hope and trust and faith in yourself. But everyone who's running the gospel of grace, we need to be reminded of this. Jesus is the exclusive, only, narrow way to God. And therefore, that truth is not, the gospel of grace, is not a popular doctrine. Insisting that only those who trust in Jesus' atoning work on the cross, that only those will find acceptance with God on the basis of grace, will offend and does offend many people, including and particularly religious people who are full of self-pride and self-righteousness because they see themselves as better than most other people and don't see the big deal about the cross. And Paul declared this message to all these devout Jews all over Asia Minor. In town after town, he encountered these religious, highly moral people who... In hearing his gospel of grace message, what? Had him arrested, had him beaten, had him stoned, left him for dead. They hated that message and were highly offended at it. And Paul went from being a devoted advocate of the religion of human achievement as a self-righteous Pharisee, performing an endless list of good works, to moving into a whole different realm in which he was a person who affirmed and put his total trust not in his own human achievement, but in the divine achievement of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And the message of the cross, as I say in your notes, the message of the cross is offensive to anyone who is relying on their own good works, on their ability to perform better, on their ability to earn something and to somehow think that they have deserved better treatment from God. Whether it's religious or irreligious people, they'll stumble over that all the time. And the gospel of grace by way of the cross cannot be combined with earning God's favor. The cross offends those who are self-righteous. And they assume that God owes them acceptance because of their efforts to do what's right. Even though the Bible compares all attempts and efforts on our part to do quote-unquote righteous deeds, Isaiah sixty. 4 says he compares them to filthy rags, disgusting things you throw away in the trash. That's God's view of them. You see, non-religionists, non-religious people like to mock the cross because they view the bloody crucifixions as a crude and gruesome form of execution, which ought never be to the focus of some dignified, noble religion. And so they just like, oh, please, let's get off this cross stuff. That's just clearly reflects a backward kind of thinking. And my friend, let me tell you something. The message of the cross is offensive, and we as Christians need to arm ourselves with greater understanding that we are entering a time in which, as we proclaim the gospel of grace and run faithfully the gospel marathon, Claiming the claims of Christ, we are going to face increasing levels of persecution. I heard a well-known Bible teacher say it this way. He said, first, a society will reject the Bible. Check. Done that. Our society has completely rejected the Bible. Then, morality then will be turned upside down. So that what is right is now wrong, and what is wrong is now right. Check, done that. Then there will be a tolerance that will be demanded for this new morality. And there will be an expectation that you are not being tolerant of what has now been defined as what's right. And therefore, that will be a lead to a response in which those who do not share in their tolerant view of morality. the the response on their part will be a a, a response of intolerance for those who would dare disagree with them. And that, my friend, will very quickly then slip into because of our intolerance, and they they see the message of Christianity at that point will become hostile. Even though we're just saying what we're saying, even though we're saying we love you, even though we're saying we are people unworthy, and undeserving of God's grace, and whatever you say at that moment, if you hold to biblical truth, at that point you'll be defined as hostile. At that point, my friend, that's where it will lead clearly to the final step, which is persecution. That's where we're headed. You can bank on it. Now, how do we respond then to those people who oppose us? How does Paul respond in this situation? I need to be very careful here, and we need to be very careful. When you read Paul's words in this text... Let me say, first of all, that the people who cut in on us in the Gospel of Grace Marathon, let's remember the big picture. Paul says there in verse 10, remember the big picture. It is not up to you to, to settle the score. We are not to be people who are going to go around and give it back to anybody who may show us any form of disrespect or mockery or persecution or whatever. He says there verse 10, listen, If they're spreading a false gospel, if they're not adopting the gospel of grace, then God will deal with them someday. It's not our job to do that, and we should never be thinking that way either. So therefore, we never become violent people. We never become angry people. We never become people who are attempting to somehow respond in a way in which uh, it's it's our job to then now extract what should be coming from these people, and that is they need to be put in their place kind of thing. No, that's not our our position at all. Paul says that. Listen. They're going to be judged by God, so just be assured that that will happen. God will deal with these people someday. You say, well, what did he say next? (laughs) Which is quite challenging, verse 12. Yes, they're being troubled by these folks, so Paul then offers what sounds like a rather savage comment at first reading, wishing that these false teachers who insist on circumcision would emasculate themselves. Now, you've got to ask yourself, first of all, as an interpreter, do you think he means that literally? I think not. I don't think that he's saying I want there to be violence in such a crude way. I think he's clearly not meant to be interpreted literally. He's not threatening violence. And may I say to you, Paul endured a lot of violence, and he has said to himself, I'd rather be damned someday if my brothers who are religious And self-righteous would someday come to understand the gospel of grace. He is not a person who is out to extract any kind of revenge. I think what he's saying here is, Paul is alluding to Deuteronomy 23, in which he understood that in the Old Testament laws, a person who was a eunuch, who had been emasculated, was not, at that point, permitted to serve in the temple. And I think what he's saying in his own coded way, his own sort of, in a way in which he's trying to, to put it in words that, that perhaps his audience would understand, because these people are insisting on circumcision, he's sort of playing using a, a, a word, word, uh, 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 word, play on words, and he's saying this. I think he's expressing an implied prayer that these troublemaking legalist teachers would be cut off from the church that they would carry these doctrines to the point at which they realize, well, we're not a part of these people, we're not a part of this group, and therefore they should be disciplined, these folks should be held accountable, so that the leaven of their teaching would no longer bear influence among the people of God. In other words, they need to be called out for who they really are. And we're not to wish anyone harm, we're not to become violent against anybody who opposes the gospel of grace. You would not ever hear me say that. That is not what this text is saying, and that's not what I am saying. Our best weapon is to point out error of their way, to call them to repentance, to love them and show them the love of Christ. And as as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it is to what? Pray for those who persecute you. It is to love your enemies. That is what we're called to do in this world. And therefore, we should not be in a position in which People who undermine the gospel, and I think it's sidelined in the the Christian life, is because they take it personally and think that somehow we've got to fight. That's not what we're seeing here at all. Paul is saying take principle and apply this in the church situation and let's resolve this matter so these people are not hindering you from running the race. If they don't repent and they're a member of the church, then they ought to be removed. I think that's what he's saying. Well, the point is, we're going to find opposition. We have to be prepared for it. We have to have our hearts filled with grace to realize, there I would go if not for the grace of God. See them through the lens of Christ, knowing that they're blind in their sin. Quickly and lastly, I want to go to a very important point here at the end. Please hear this out. Don't just stop there. But notice where Paul is going here in this text. If we're going to be running the Gospel of Grace marathon, there needs to be encouraging fellowship. Encouraging fellowship. I've known a number of runners over the years who I've respected. I've never run with them because I couldn't keep up with them. But I know that one of the things that runners find helpful is to have somebody that runs with them. It is get lonely. It does get long and tiring to be out there all by yourself, mile after mile. And so many, when they're facing with a difficult section of a marathon race, Many runners have said, oh, it's been great to know that my friend is either above, in front of me or he's beside me or he's behind me. I know he's there and I just get the sense that I'm not running this thing alone. Or they run against and they see somebody on the sidelines cheering them on and they go, oh, that really helps to know that, that, that word of encouragement for me, urging me onward, tremendously beneficial. So Paul says in verse 8, he comes alongside of these Christians and he urges them onward. And he says, listen, you're not running alone. His words are designed to motivate those fellow believers to keep running for the glory of God. And he reminds them that God is the one who called them. Verse 8. And the opening words of this epistle in chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 4 and 5, I'm convinced were part of his effort to speak into their lives so they would keep on running, in which he says this, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. That, that's his way of saying, listen man, don't ever lose sight of that as you run this race. Don't ever lose sight of the grace of God and the blessings you enjoy in the gospel. I would suggest to you that Paul offers words in verse 10, of encouragement, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. I wonder, does, in your running the race, do you ever offer words of hope to the people around you? To your fellow runners in that race who are a little discouraged? Maybe they've lost sight of the gospel, dealing with God on the basis of grace. And do you come alongside of other believers and have you ever seen perhaps another believer who's caught in sin? Somehow his running in the race is slowed down. He's not, doing, he's not making good progress anymore. Man, he's really gotten sidetracked. He's way over there. He stopped running and he's gone in there and gets something from Burger King, which is a, an awful sin for a runner, okay? Marathoner, you never do that. So, so the point is What? So if you have understood the gospel of grace, then you're going to sort of say, I'm going to take my race. And I'm going to go and I'm going to... Chapter 6, verse 1. If you know anyone who, is, who has gotten caught in sin, you get involved in that person's life and you bring the gospel to bear in that situation and you speak into their life and you show them lovingly, look, man, I want to restore you. Get back in the race. You've lost sight of what it's all about. Don't forget Jesus. What He did for you on the cross you point out the believers that you know who get off the course of the gospel of grace and they get off into legalism and they've gotten off into rule keeping and adding all these things to the Christian life that don't really have to make that big a difference and they're making it as if it is the gospel and you bring them the liberating, motivating gospel of grace back into the equation so they just keep on running. My friend, don't ever... Minimize the impact you could have with some other discouraged believer in speaking into their life, if nothing else, a word of scripture. Saying, This is what I've been meditating on. God's really helped me with this word. Getting your eyes back on Christ and off yourself. Believers who are running the gospel of grace marathon, let me say, you friends, you don't run alone. And we have not only this collective participation of a church family that has made a covenant to say we as members of this church we are committed to ministering to each other building each other in our faith but we also have a larger cloud of witnesses that we can't even see them all and you read about them in, in Hebrews chapter 11 there's a long list of them people who live by faith they didn't see the full end of all the promises they were counting on but they kept running the race and now they've come across the line they're no longer in this world and they're cheering us on Saying, "Listen, keep going. Don't give up, don't get sidetracked. Keep your eyes on Christ." Now some of these people, when they ran that race, some were miraculously delivered from their opponents. But other people who were running the race were what? They ran those opponents, and those opponents saw them in half as martyrs for Christ. Some obtained the promises, others became destitute, didn't have a place to live, they were homeless. Others were delivered from their opponents. Others were ill-treated. What's the point? They are cheering us onward in this gospel of grace marathon, and they're urging every believer to keep their eyes on Christ and to remember His loving sacrifice, that the gracious exchange has taken place because this is the gospel of grace, that He took our sin and shame, and we have received His righteousness and sonship and full restoration and reconciliation because of grace. My friend, keep running the race. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you might help us today to take to heart some realities that we're going to face in this world. There are many people who are offended at the cross, but Lord, we know that the cross is what we boast of. The cross is our only hope. The cross is where we see the unbelievable, amazing grace of Christ shown to us in providing to us what we could not ever have found otherwise or gained for ourselves. So, Father, help us, we pray, to be prepared for people who oppose the gospel of grace. Help us to love them. Help us to see them through your eyes. Help us to share the truth with them in ways that are in keeping with the grace that has captured our hearts. Help us not to become embittered, angry Christians. Help us to be loving, compassionate Christians who are showing forth the grace and mercy and love of Christ. I pray, Lord, for those who are here today who may feel alone, in the race of the Christian life. Lord, I pray that they may find themselves in a band of fellow runners who will speak into their life encouragement and hope and grace and truth. And Father, I also pray that if there are those who have been on the sidelines and who have said, oh, I don't think I can make that kind of sacrifice. I don't think I can run that race. It requires too much. Oh, Father, I pray, oh, I pray that their eyes would be opened and to see the incredible love and mercy and grace of God in Christ, that you would melt their heart of stone and that they might, Lord, sense the greatness of your love for them in providing this incredible sacrifice, this substitution, someone like Christ taking upon himself what they deserve so that they might be freely forgiven on the base of grace, Lord, I pray today that they would trust in Christ and begin the race themselves. Do your mighty work among us, we pray, and help us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.